My name is Nancy Farrow, also known as Mama Lou, and I'm the founder of Epic Experience. Epic Experience mission is to empower adult cancer survivors and thrivers to live beyond cancer. I hope that as you listen to Campfires of Hope, Living Beyond Cancer, you find hope, healing, and empowerment. Through stories and education, we aim to guide those impacted by cancer, and more importantly, offer love and support to anyone out there who needs it. This is Beyond Cancer. Hello, everyone. This is Gail, a.k.a. Sunshine. Today, we have Manny De La Cruz joining us around the campfire. Welcome, Manny. Hello, Gail. How are you? I am doing great. It's so good to have you. Thank you for joining us. So first, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you live, and please always include one fun fact. Okay, I'll try. So hello, everyone uh, that's listening. My name is Manny De La Cruz. I'm a TC, testicular cancer survivor, flash survivor, whatever we want to label it. Um, I'm originally from Southern California. I grew up right near Disneyland. Uh, and I have lived in nine cities across nine states since um, I graduated high school in 2010. Um, I'm a real estate investor. I'm currently pursuing my MBA. And I joined the military after high school in 2010 through a service academy. Uh, and I served in the Marine Corps from 2015 up until this year. Uh, and I'm also an Epic Experience alumni. Uh, awesome. One fun fact about me is that I've lived in 34 states, or no, that I've visited 34 states. So I only have 16 uh, wow. left to, to either drive through or go through. So Do you have a favorite? California. Yeah. It's hard <laughs> to beat, right? The weather. Did you go to Disneyland a lot as a child? I did not, actually. I, I, I went whenever there was a planned school trip. Yeah. So if school, you know, found a way to get us, it, it's just really expensive to, to get into the park. It's ridiculous. It's just the, 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 uh, the upfront kind of getting into the door or getting in through the gate and then, you know, food adds up after a while. So yeah, for sure. um, that, I, I think I've only been maybe like three or four times in my entire life. Uh, yeah. Most recently back in August when I was, you know, visiting my family. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you mentioned that you're a TC cancer survivor. So let's talk a little bit about that. What is your diagnosis story? What kind of symptoms were you having? What did they do for treatment? All of that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I was uh, I was actually diagnosed pretty recently. I was diagnosed in January of 2022. Um, my I guess it presented initially as just extreme excruciating pain in my left mm. testicle. Uh, it was it, it was it was terrible. Um, wow. I. Couldn't stand the pain. I was actually at work um, and the, the pain presented itself. It was like right, right around two o'clock in the morning. It was, it, it was an evening shift, a night shift. Um, and I was just going to try to tough it out, see if, you know, I could take some Tylenol and, you know, kind of lasted for, for longer than normal. Uh, mm-hmm. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't take it. So at the time I sent a message to my, uh, my girlfriend at the time. Uh, I, I asked her, 
where is the closest hospital? Mm. Um, because I was in the, in the place where I was working, I, we didn't have access to, you know, cell phones and um, computers. So I, it was kind of difficult to communicate with the outside world. So I sent her a message. Like, I think I might have sent her an email or something. And I asked her, where was the closest hospital? Long story short, I, somebody just happened to be there and they took over, you know, my, my, uh, my role. And I got in the car and I drove to the nearest hospital. Uh, and I went to a hospital near Baltimore. Um, they did the ultrasound. Long story short, there was an ER physician that he kind of told it to me in passing. He was like, hey, by the way, you have cancer. Oh. And he kind of just breeze, drove by the, the wow. exam room. Uh, and there wasn't really anything to it. And of course, after so many hours waiting in the, in the ER and just kind of just being on pins and needles for so long, you're just like, no, there's no way I don't believe it. So the next morning, so I, I guess at that point I was up for quite a while. Um, so the next morning, just I, I just didn't accept it. So I chose to go to Walter Reed and I went through to their ER and, you know, I, I went to them and I told them, you know, the, the, the spiel, uh, I gave them the ultrasound uh, report and kind of i just kind of went home at that point and like so i think that was on a thursday or friday the following actually that that the friday a urologic oncologist called me um just out of the blue maybe not out of the blue because they kind of had already called me uh and he said hey you should probably come in for an appointment and i was like what's going on so you know the next Monday, actually, I went in for an appointment, which I which which was ironically the day that I was scheduled to close on my first home. Uh, so yeah. As I mentioned, I was a real, as I was a real estate <laughs> investor. So we actually had our ho- our closing appointment at nine o'clock in the morning. You know, we went through, got the keys to the new house. Uh, we left the tenant company location, and I went to the old house. You know, picked up a couple things, and then I drove straight to Walter Reed. And then I, I, met, I sat down with the oncologist and he kind of went over the results. He said, it, it's 100% uh, testicular cancer. So at that point, that's kind of like when, when I found out. And the next, uh, the next two that dropped it, he said, so that was on a Monday. And I think he told me that we can, we can be in surgery the following Thursday or like that same week. Oh my uh, gosh. So it, it all went by very, very fast. So I had surgery on February 3rd. Yeah, the 31st of January is when we closed. Surgery was the following, uh, that, that, a couple of days later. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the initial part. Uh, so, you know, they took, took the left one out. Uh, pathology came back, found out that I had spread up into my lymph nodes. Mm-hmm. You know, at that point, I was presented with the the option of pursuing chemo or doing a, a, a RPLND or retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. And at that point, I just wanted to be done with cancer. I have a I guess a, a background with it. My mom uh, actually mm. passed away from cancer a few years back, oh, um, so I I uh, have a unique experience with it, having seen you know your parent go through mm-hmm. it. So I just wanted to be done with it. So I wanted to be I wanted to go about it the most aggressive way, just get it done and over with. So um, the way uh, he presented it to me, I said like, well, more likely to get it through the RPL and D um, versus the chemo because I just didn't want to deal with the long term side effects of chemo at that point in time, right. which Fertility was a big one, uh, among mm-hmm. other things, um, because I, you know, was looking for a family. Uh, I am still looking for a family in the future. <laughs> so we, we did the RPLND. Uh, that was in April 22. You know, went through a, a couple of rounds of sperm banking. That was a wonderful experience. So we did we did the surgery, and I think I was reclassified as like stage two or something like that. So initially it was stage one, and then I got and went up to stage two. Okay. So we, th- we thought we were good in April. 
you know, we're in surveillance mode. And then the night of the first set of surveillance camps in July, uh, you know, my tumor markers came back elevated. Um, mm. I, you know, had that sit down with the oncologist and he said the cancer's come back because like, you know, my HCG was elevated and that can only mean one thing. So at the time I was not too phased by it um, because one of the, I guess one of our goals that, you know, my, my fiance now at that time um, was to have kids. And that's when mm-hmm. we had found out just a few days prior that we were expecting. Um, oh, wow. So chemo, chemo didn't really phase me necessarily. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, all right, let's just do it, get it over with. Mm-hmm. So a few days later, you know, I was uh, in the interventional radiology room getting my port, port placement. And I think within a week I start, I started my, my, at the time for three rounds of BEP. Um, it shifted a little bit because I had a, a slight reaction to one of the medications. So I ended up doing four rounds of chemo from July until October. Uh, and then unfortunately that same month, um, we experienced a loss. So that was a big letdown um, mm. and not a fun time, um, no. which kind of ties into my, my camp nickname that <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to. So we did chemo from October and then the next set of surveillance scans in November, uh, there was an enlarged mass in my chest. Oh, gosh. Uh, so we ended up doing three rounds of biopsies across three months from, you know, across the holidays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, I just decided to get a second opinion because I just I wasn't taking, you know, it's probably nothing for an answer. So I just wanted to get a second opinion. I ended up going to IU. I saw Dr. Einhorn. I saw Dr. Kessler out there. And we did a, our, I forgot what surgery number that was at that point, but I had a thoracotomy at Indiana. That was also a lot of fun. I uh, spent about a week <laughs> in the hospital. Uh, and yeah, so that last surgery was in March. My port was removed in June, uh, of 23 and I went to the Epic camp in August. <laughs> wow. Okay. That, that is quite a, not even a year, right? I mean, or a little over, it's, it all started January of 22. Yeah. Is that where January it all started? 22. And it so, just uh, right around 15 to 18 months or so. Months. Okay. So when they finally did the, the last surgery, was that cancerous? Yeah, it was actually. So it was it ended up being positive for for teratoma, which I guess thankful that I was teratoma and not the other variant, which would have required high dose chemotherapy and you mm-hmm. know other various lines of treatment. Uh, so it was kind of kind of a blessing and a curse that mm-hmm. it was, but it wasn't something else because that would not have been a fun experience. Right. I would imagine. So they removed it through surgery, but you didn't need follow-up treatment after that. So ever since then, so that was June, March. no evidence of, or March, sorry, no evidence, no evidence of disease since then. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. So for, yeah. Thank you. I had a first set of scans. I got one, I think it was August or July that, you know, they officially said, uh, no, you're good. You're no evidence of disease. And I was like, wait, what? You're, you're kidding, right? Yeah. Uh, because every point up until when they had told me that they had said like you're good and then like a month later they said no, i'm not good because i was in that one right. percent or that half of that one percent um wow so yeah so I'm this sounds now. like a very tumultuous period what was the mental and emotional and you had this other thing going on right your fiance was pregnant and it sounds like she lost the baby so gosh what what was it like mentally emotionally so I figured out what my coping mechanism was and just because of my background and, you know, having a, having a, I guess, a military background and bringing the Marine Corps, like I'm, I'm so used to 
being deeply involved in something and just being busy. Like I, I, I have mm-hmm. to be doing something. So I think after the couple of surgeries, I was thankful to, you know, to have the, the leeway with work where I was able to take some time off for the surgeries and chemo. Um, but I just couldn't just sit at home, not doing yeah. anything. Um, so I had to be doing something. So as I, I had mentioned, we, you know, we bought the house, we were um, renting out a portion of the house. So that took a considerable amount of time, you know, furnishing, mm-hmm. it, um, you know, working to get a tenant. I also had an idea like, well, what else am I doing for myself and developing my personal identity outside of Manny as a Marine Corps officer? So I was, mm-hmm. I kind of had an introspective look at what I was doing for myself. So I had the bright idea of going and starting my MBA uh, during my second, my, my second round of treatment. Awesome. Um, which was good and bad because right. you know, I was, I was busy and, and, and what it really taught me is it, it really taught me like my limit of what I can take yeah, physically, emotionally, mentally, all the allies, if you will. And I just, I just kept piling stuff on um, because I just, I didn't want to just sit in the feelings, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I just deal, deal with, wow, I have cancer. So I just, I just kept busy yeah. and eventually I just, I couldn't handle yeah. it anymore. I had to, you know, I took, took a semester off from school. You know, I had, you yeah. know, I, I, you know, I let some of the balls bounce, if you will. So like the glass balls, rubber balls. So I just, I was spending too much time and effort trying to, trying to keep everything up in the air. And I just said, you know, I, I can't take it. Yeah. Um. So as I mentioned before, like there was, Throughout the whole experience, there was a lot of ups and downs. Like, you know, we would, we bought a house, got diagnosed with cancer. You know, we, <laughs> you know, this happened. And then it was, it was just right. like every single time there was something good, it was overshadowed by something bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of brings in, brings it into, I guess, the nickname or a kind of segue is like, it was like riding a wave. Yeah. Um, where like, you know, you're, you're, you're high and then you're super low. So my nickname at camp was, was Wave Rider because yeah. um, it was about 18 months. That, and it's, it's still going on right now, but um, that's my nickname. Yeah, that, so, complete, that is a perfect description of what that period must have been like, the highs and lows. I mean, just like, and that is a um, a great nickname because you, what, you <laughs> rode those waves and here you are, right? Even though you're still riding them, I'm sure you are doing it. So how did, again, it seems like your whole, your diagnosis and your relationships and all of it is all intermixed. How did your diagnosis affect your relationship with your girlfriend and then fiance and your, and other family members and friends? How did all that happen? Well, so it accelerated a lot, at least between my girlfriend at the time, now mm-hmm. my wife. Um, it, it accelerated a lot in terms of like how supportive she was during mm-hmm. the initial diagnosis, and like it just became solidified that like she's yeah. the person. Like, yeah, she awesome. didn't waver. So her and I got very close very quickly. Uh, yeah, it just <laughs> it happens. <laughs> mul- mul- multiple surgeries, and yeah, yeah, you just yeah, like that's how I knew that I wanted yeah. to marry her. Um, even before, yeah, it was, ironically, I had asked for her hand from her dad, December of 22, before. Oh, my God. I was I was actually, December 21, technically, before I was actually diagnosed. So I, maybe there was just, yeah. I don't know. It was meant to be. Yeah, um, definitely. So we got super close. And yeah, I'm super thankful that she's in my life. Uh, and then in terms of friends and family, my family is all in California. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so when I broke the news to them, um, it was rather difficult for them to, yeah. to try to help me through this experience from afar because I'm in, I'm in Maryland. I did all my treatment in Maryland with the exception of the surgery in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all in California. And the way my family and I all are, we're, we're all very closely knit and interconnected. And when we experienced our, I guess, when my mom went through her cancer journey, we were all there mm-hmm. uh, in one way, shape or form. We were all in the vicinity, um, you know, through most of her treatment up until, you know, she ended up passing in 2019. So I think they had a difficult experience um, trying to help me through the process of being supportive. Yeah from afar and, and they all were to the best of their abilities. Like they were super helpful during chemo. Like my, one of my sisters started meal train, like they would DoorDash meals to the house because yeah. we just didn't have time to think about it. And like, um, they were so helpful throughout the entire process. Yeah. Uh, so my family, we also got even more closer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have like a group chat and like I had a calendar of my, all my appointments and they would know, or they would remind me, Hey, your scan's coming up or like your infusion is on Monday or this is your rest week or, so we we're all very involved. Yeah. Um, and then for my friends, a lot of, uh, I found out, you know, who the really, really good friends are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm super appreciative um, that, you know, they were part of my journey uh, and they were so willing to help out um, because, yeah, I have, I had no idea how much I needed other people. And that's one mm-hmm. of the things that I, that I learned throughout that, you know, time period of, of just having cancer is I learned to ask for help. Yeah. Uh, I'm not normally one to be willing to ask for help, to acknowledge that I need help, uh, to acknowledge that I need to, you know, set things down and take a step back. But I didn't have much of a choice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I, I kind of just allowed myself to to open up to other people, which was probably one of the most difficult things to do. Yeah. How did your friends respond when you asked for help? Oh, they were there in an instant. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like That's no awesome. questions asked. Like I would ask him for, you know, I forgot what I would ask him for. Like, <laughs> you know, one of them, uh, one of my, one of my really, really, really good friends. You know, he let us stay at his house for during a few of the infusions. Like we would go the first week of the first, the first week of the first treatment. We just got tired of being near the hospital, and we just drove down and we stayed at his house for a few nights. And you know, he cooked us dinner. He just knew he had That's an idea neat. of how difficult it was. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we became very close, but yeah, all of them, anybody that I, that I ended up asking for help, like it was no questions asked and that is not what I expected. Well, yeah, that's the tough thing is opening your mouth to ask and then finding that they're right there and so willing to do it, but we have to take that first step, right? (laughs) Yeah. The, the, I guess the startup, not making up a startup cost, but it, it's exceeding, it was exceedingly difficult for me. So that's that sounds like that's kind of how life was before you found Epic. So how did you find Epic, and what made you apply uh, to go to something like that? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I found out about Epic on Facebook. Uh, the mm. TC, uh, the Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation page. Chris posted something mm-hmm. about it, and his his post read something to the effect that there was a there was a camp, and it was just guys with TC. And I was kind of super surprised because throughout mm-hmm. all the way up until all the way up until I think I had my last surgery, I had, I had not met another testicular cancer patient. Really? Yes. It's like super common. 
there was a number of not now, you know, good friends that, you know, were also getting treatment at Walter Reed that I met after that, after the fact. Um, but I had not met anybody else up until that point. Um, so I was just super eager to see what it was all about, to see if it was something real. I just, mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. I was like, no way. Just a bunch of TC guys <laughs> doing something at a camp in Colorado. Right. I had no idea what to expect. So yeah, I, I, I think I emailed Chris like the same day and, you know, we got some forms filled out and I think, yeah, I was in August, <laughs> a couple of weeks later, I was yeah. in Colorado just a couple of weeks later. Right. Um, so yeah, that's how I found out about it. So what expectations did you have based on the little you read or heard? What were you thinking uh, you were going to get out of this experience? Honestly, I, so I, I did an initial search on like the website to see if it was legit organization. So when I got the packing list, there was the, the packing list was, it had a certain amount of items and, you know, the background that I have, I'm used to being either super prepared or overly prepared for, for like anything. So like, right. I need to know what I need to pack. What do I need to bring? Am I going to do this thing? Am I going to do this thing? And, you know, I got like a very uh, standard packing list. <laughs> um, so I, I went in there. I did. I had no idea what to expect. Uh, and I was pleasantly surprised at, uh, at what we experienced up in Colorado. What were your takeaways? Like when you came home, what what were some of the biggest lessons you learned that you have continued? I mean, you only went what three weeks ago, and this four weeks uh, ago. It was was it August or was it September? Oh, it was beginning of September. So still yeah, fairly so fresh. About a month, about a month and some change. So, so what did you take were, away? Yeah. So there are other people going to very very similar situations. Mm-hmm. Like I got to the airport. And there was a group of men hanging out mm-hmm. um, near, I think, in, near baggage claim or around baggage claim. And I was like, is that the group of guys? Mm-hmm. And then I saw I saw Colin in his shirt. I think he called me because I was running late or something. Um, and I was like, super, you know, uneasy. I didn't know. Yeah. If, like, just flying across the country, meeting up with a bunch of dudes. <laughs> you have no idea. Uh, so it was like super, super awkward for the maybe like the first half an hour. Yeah. You know, because we were there in the airport and then we got into the car and like we just we just broke the ice because we all knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think within I'd say I'm not joking, like within like less than 10 minutes, we were, we were talking about fertility. We were talking about which one was taken out. We were talking about like surgery scars, symptoms like we we're yeah. having some like very, very deep conversations within like yep. the first 30 minutes of meeting these total strangers. Mm-hmm. And I had never connected with anybody instantaneously like that mm-hmm. outside of another Marine yeah. or another service member. Uh, and it was a very, very, I use the word interesting, but it was, it was a very, very interesting experience to have that instant connection with somebody that just understood that just knew. And I think our, our group of the group of men that, you know, were in our car, like we were just, yeah, we were just like best friends after that. I think it was like yeah. four hours. Yep. Uh, up to the ranch, um, we got out of the car and like we're all asking each other like, "What did you guys talk about? What did you guys talk about?" <laughs> but yeah, it was it was super cool. That is one of the uh, biggest takeaways I think I got too is that like you're not the only one who has experienced X fill in the blank, and in your case, since yeah. you literally all had the same kind of cancer, even more so. And so, if you've never talked to other people, uh, to have that experience is hugely bonding uh, from the from the get go. Oh yeah, and it was it was also kind of comical in some aspects. 
to think about like the stuff that we were thinking about because you know i had you know once you get diagnosed with cancer you admittedly some I, at least i did I'm, i can't speak for everybody but I, at least i did i had some very morbid thoughts mm-hmm. in terms of worst case scenario what do i do you know what happens i have to if i have to get high dose worst case scenario surgery blah 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 blah. like you can go down right. a black hole or a rabbit hole for for all these certain situations and going into it i just i was just thinking like that's not abnormal. Like other people mm-hmm. were thinking those same things. Exactly. Um, so that's one of the other takeaways is that like, you're, you know, you could think that you're alone in this as you're going through it. Um, but somewhere there's somebody else that is experiencing a very, very similar situation that is also trying to get through it. That is also trying to work through their highs and lows. And, you know, if somebody else can do it, you know, so could I, and then mm-hmm. you know, so could anyone else that may or may not get diagnosed. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share with the people listening, whether it's someone who's a survivor, whether it's specifically to testicular cancer or any kind of cancer, or even maybe somebody who's a caregiver? Well, I think this is for the, either the individuals that are going through it, soon to be survivors. Um, one is to, to ask all the questions. There's no dumb question that you could ask. Like in my case, I asked all the questions about the, you know, the, the unlikeliest scenario in each one of those NCCA guidelines, NCCN guidelines process flowcharts. Like I asked all mm-hmm. those questions because I just wanted to know what was coming up next. Mm-hmm. So don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't take no for an answer because I, I got told numerous times it's not likely to happen. But the type of person that I am, and you know, I unfortunately how I got fixated on on the diagnosis, I was just I just couldn't take no for an answer, and yeah. I just needed an answer as to was it cancerous or not? Is it going to come back? Is it going to spread? Am I going to have to do this again? So just don't be afraid to advocate for yourself. Um, because at the end of the day, nobody cares about you more than you. So just, yeah, I was relatively belligerent about some of that, um, especially through the latter parts of my treatment, because I just, yeah. I just wanted to be done with it. And then another thing is understand like that the caregivers, the ones that are closest to you, like they're trying their best. And it's also hard for them too. Mm-hmm. And just to know that they want to be there, they want to help, but just to be gracious, to be thankful. And I'm ultimately, I'm thankful for my wife. Like I, I wouldn't have gone through my experience if it wasn't for hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Thank you. Those are all very important thoughts. Definitely. Now we're going to just get a little silly. So marshmallows over <laughs> a campfire, slow and steady or flame and crispy. I'm a slow and steady person. Are you? <laughs> yeah. All I, right. I, there's a lot of flaming crispy guys uh, up at the ranch, and yep. yeah, I was I was rather slow with it. Awesome. Well, Manny, thank you so much. Thank you for being vulnerable. I really appreciate you sharing your experience as a guy, right? Feeling like you can't ask for help, you don't want to ask for help, and then seeing how people want to help when you are willing to do that. I really appreciate you sharing that. And um, I really thank you for your time. Thank you, Gail. Appreciate it. Well, until the next time we gather around the campfire, keep living beyond cancer. Thank you for listening to this episode of Campfires of Hope, Living Beyond Cancer. 
For more information about Epic Experience and our programs, or to donate, please visit our website at epicexperience.org. Music for this podcast is provided by Moonshiner Collective. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us so we can share our story with more people. Also, be sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you'll know when new episodes are released. We hope you come back and join us for our next episode. Valentine.